everyone and for today i actually have emily of the twin peaks tattoo podcast which actually happens to be one of my favorite current favorite shows at the moment but i handed the mic over to her so she can introduce herself further oh thanks so much colin i'm so happy to be here and to talk about nadine with you um yeah so i have the twin peaks tattoo podcast which is a podcast where i interview Twin Peaks fans about their tattoos and what their ink means to them. And they get to share stories about how they came up with the concept of their tattoo, what the show means to them, how they understand it now. And we tell funny stories and we, you know, go off on tangents as we like to do. Um, And so that's my podcast. I also am a psychotherapist and a graduate level psychology professor. And I teach a class on depth psychology and Twin Peaks. And so I love nerding out about Jungian analysis of the show, and I love talking about the different psychological aspects around trauma and trauma healing and trauma recovery, especially when it comes to Nadine. I'm excited to go there with you today. That's a little bit about me. I also am a writer on 25YL and Blue Rose Magazine, the new issue that's coming out. I have a a piece with uh, where I go into analyzing Harold Smith. And the psychology of Harold and uh, kind of look at Harold as a hermit archetype uh, and pull out his strengths and resiliencies because, you know, he has a lot of challenges, as we know, but he also has a lot of really brilliant things about him. And he's, you know, a historian and um, and a, pr- a preservationist and is a really interesting, interesting character for me. So make sure to check out that as well. I guess the first part that I'll bring up is that in the secret history, we have a few different parts of Nadine, and a lot of it is uh, is very inconsistent because, you know, in the secret history, we start off where, according to Cooper, Nadine's last name was Lindstrom, which shares Norma's last name in the secret history and the final dossier. So it kind of makes you realize that everything seems off right from the get-go, but everything else is rather consistent because they talk about how she met Ed in her senior year. She was the head of the cheerleading squad. She has a modest family that was working class and it's pretty preliminary, but at least adds up with what was the, the original series. But when we get to the ballad of uh, Ed and Norma Nadine, not only does Hawk just seem completely out of character, but a lot of the stuff just does not make sense as well. Cause now her last name is Nadine Gertz. And according to him, Nadine and Ed meet in 1984. And this all has that has to do with Big Ed almost hitting her lightly with a John uh, with his John Deere tractor. <laughs> and that uh, maybe there was a misinterpretation on how they felt when they met. They got married three weeks later. The rest of the bookhouse boys hardly remember her apart from Andy. Everything about it, and I know that the, this part of the of the secret history, a lot of people have a point of contention with. For Dr. Jacoby, he talks about how in 1987, he does his report about her eye being shot out. And he talks about how he implies that it seems like Big Ed was probably the one to be the one to shoot her on a quote-unquote accident. And not that Ed is above lying, but it seems like his thing about Nadine in the season two premiere seems too heartfelt to be a lie to me. So we have these three different stories that just feel completely different and seem to contradict each other one way or another. Especially with the one about Hawk, I genuinely have really don't have a good compelling reason. The only thing I could have feasibly thought of was that uh, Major Briggs, he was the one to doctor a lot of this stuff and doctor a lot of what we see in the secret history mm-hmm. to throw off Mr. C because the whole thing is that everything that Mr. C needs is in Twin Peaks, but by doctoring a lot of stuff, even innocuous stuff, that would lead to him on a 25-year crusade to go around the world and uh, and come back to Twin Peaks. Uh, and even that was like a shot in the dark. Colin, I love the way your mind works. I love the way you think about this stuff. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, that it could be all for Mr. C. But yeah, there's different stories and there's inconsistencies and even in her name, right? So there's a lot around her identity that just gets confusing the dr jacoby uh, implication that ed on purpose maybe shot her on the hunting accident i mean i agree i don't think that he was trying to hurt her i do believe it was an accident but 
I don't know, was there like an unconscious motivation maybe of him wanting to like not have her around because of what he discovers after marrying her that, you know, she has a lot of mental health instability? Maybe. That's an interesting idea, you know. And Dr. Jacoby in that report, I mean, I don't know if listeners have read that, but I would recommend to go back and review it because as complicated and problematic as Dr. Jacoby can be, that is a really interesting insight, both into Nadine, but also into his character. And then that becomes important later on in the return when we see them coming back together, when coming together in a different way, not as doctor patient, but as whatever potential romantic partners or love interests. One thing in that Dr. Jacoby report that seems consistent to me is that there's that part where he talks about how it's a shame that her eye was lost because she would have been the perfect candidate to try on his glasses. And it seems like Jacoby's very selective because it's it shows in pretty much all media that Jacoby's kind of burned out and passive in his role. But he sees something in Nadine and how mm -hmm. like uh, the fact that she doesn't have that eye. But uh, he talks about how he even entertains the idea that her losing the eye was deliberate because uh, of how it affects her brain. So he says that he speculates if it's deliberate, and if so, that she deliberately shut down a pathway to her intuitive side. Mm. And then also, uh, one thing that's worth mentioning is that her mother was manic depressive. I wasn't sure if that all this, just come, where you come from as a psychotherapist, if any of that kind of rings true to you or if it seems contradictory. Yeah, uh, that's a great question, Colin. I mean, one of the things that was so helpful about preparing to talk to you today was to go back and look at the secret history and to look at this Dr. Jacoby report and learn more about her family of origin history. So when I wrote Run Silent, Run Drapes, What Nadine's Story Teaches Us About Trauma Loops, Trauma Healing, and Trauma Recovery on 25YL, I hadn't gone back to look at her family of origin history, and I'm really glad that I did. To learn about her mom, for example, who is manic depressive, which is, we used to call it that now, it's called bipolar experience. It's the same thing. And that really aligns with some of the behaviors that we see in Nadine. We know bipolar is, there's a genetic predisposition for a bipolar experience. And when we see Nadine's kind of manic energy, expansive energy, high highs, and also her really low lows, her depression, her, you know, attempt to die by suicide attempt, that we see that manifesting in her as well. Also a little bit of a maybe predisposition for like a psychotic experience of, of a delusion of, you know, believing that she's back in high school, which is awesome. So I think like, I love that part. I love her going back in time, uh, which I'll say more about, but, you know, learning about her, the history there of her mom's mental health and also her dad's alcoholism was really important too. So here's a home environment that is really, really unstable for Nadine. So what we see with her is when she's 16, her mother has a bipolar experience. I call it mental health experience instead of mental illness because it's a it's more of a strength-based way to describe something that's happening for somebody. It's not an illness. It's not something to be pathologized that's bad or wrong. It's just an experience that we're having. So we see her mom have this bipolar experience and she ends up hospitalized. And her mom has a very traumatic experience in the hospital with electroshock therapy, hydrotherapy, which I'm still not totally sure what that is, but it just sounds horrific, and basically being injected with antipsychotics. And about two months after her mom goes into the hospital when Nadine is 16, Nadine has a mental health experience and also has to be hospitalized. Now, that's really well-written in terms of her character, that's very realistic. And what happens to Nadine, and thanks to you, Colin, I learned all of this by reading The Secret History. What happens to Nadine is she's 16, she's at school, she's at high school, and she's by her locker and she freezes. She literally becomes frozen. Like she can't move, she can't say anything, she breaks down. And when we experience trauma, the amygdala in our brain goes off and we can go into like a fight, flight or freeze experience. You might have, people may have heard of that. And so I see this as a freeze experience for Nadine. Her mom has just had a break. She's freezing. She's also in her own traumatic break. She's having her own experience in that moment. And she's frozen. They literally have to carry her <laughs> away. And then she also becomes hospitalized in that time, during that time. This I see is really one of the beginnings of a trauma loop that she gets stuck in 
right there. And she's 16. And she spends six months in the mental hospital at 16. Can you imagine that? You're in high school. All of a sudden you disappear for six months. You know, you're not in contact necessarily with your with your people, with your friends. I mean, being 16 is like a totally major experience in your life, right? Being in high school and being taken out of that and having this mental health break, this frozenness, I can't even imagine the lasting impact on that for Nadine. And so she leaves, she she goes into the mental hospital, she comes home, her mom is not home, who's home with her, her alcoholic father. So she has no one at the house who's really going to be able to support her in the recovery process that she needs. And so even though she goes back to school and she, you know, finishes what she needs to do, she's still not well because she doesn't have the environment around her that's fully supporting her recovery process. So just knowing this, and I know I just went really into a deep dive Colin, here at with her already, but this is really important background information for us in understanding how Nadine shows up in season one and two and, and definitely in the return. This is the beginning of her getting stuck and seeking to find ways to get unstuck in her life. The other important piece that I'll just mention is that her father is an inventor. So also in The Secret History, it talks about how he invents, I believe, a something like, oh, an industrial flame retardant, which, and, and patents it, which I'm not totally sure what that is, but that sounds very important and interesting. And so she's got, you know, Nadine's got this inventor energy too in her. I mean, she's brilliant, right? This is what gets her to, to get the silent drape runner going. She's got that energy inside of her. She's got that inventor spirit. And so I think that's also an important part that comes up in the history of understanding that link between her and her father, you know, perhaps a way for her psychologically to get unstuck is, and I have much to say about the drapes, but is also about her being able to connect to her father through also inventing the way he invented this thing that then created financial stability for her family. I mean, he invented this flame retardant and they were able to survive really well. I mean, they were pretty well off as far as I understand. And just saying this out loud to you, I'm realizing like a flame retardant. Oh, that's interesting in terms of looking at symbol symbology of fire in the show and like what that means. I'm blown away. That's uh, I had a few notes about her father, but you hit the nail on the head and then more. The only thing I think I could add is that uh, her mother does return home later. It's like a bad situation that becomes worse and that she passes mm. away in, at least according to what we see in the secret history in 1982, which is, to be fair, a little later in her life, but at the same time, the fact that her father, who has a history of substance abuse issues, it doesn't confirm or deny if it's still a problem by that point. But, you know, we also don't really see much of her family, clearly not her mother, but also not her father by the by season one. So, you know, she has like this dysfunctional dynamic that only got worse as time has gone on. Um, do you yeah. think there's anything else that I'm, I'm missing or anything that would kind of make sense of, for why she is the way she is by the original series? Yeah, I mean, I think that the it's implied that it's untreated alcoholism with her father. And so we don't know what that means. You're right, Colin. We don't know what that what that could look like for her. But certainly uh, folks who grew up in alcoholic and addicted family systems, there's just a lot of dysfunction that happens in a lot of ways that kids have to adapt, especially for Nadine, having a mother with mental health experience and a father with addiction. I imagine that she had to grow up really quickly and take on a lot of responsibility emotionally and probably physically in the family as well. A lot of kids who grow up in that type of environment will have to do things like emotionally take care of their parents, right? Like her mom and her father. What does that look like? Is she picking up beer cans at night? Is she figuring out how to pay the bills because they're neither one of them are functional enough to do that. There's a lot of imagining that we can do about what that must have been like for Nadine. And so when she meets Ed, I could imagine her looking at him like, oh, could I please, you know, is is there, could I have a, a caretaker figure? Because he, like you said, their first meeting is him like hitting her, <laughs> having this moment with her. And then he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? He's worried about 
obviously, did I hurt this person that I don't know? And also, am I going to lose my business because I'm going to get sued because I just hit her tractor or whatever? But he's got this kind of like fatherly energy. He's got this paternal energy where he's like holding her, taking care of her. And she right away, it says in the secret history, kind of falls and it falls into him, you know, is excited by him, starts kissing him. You know, I think she kind of sees him as a protector and a caretaker, which is great because she hasn't had that, right? She's coming from a family of origin where she's, it's not there. So she's looking for that. But of course it gets messy. And Ed in so many ways does represent that. You know, he, he takes in James, he takes care of James, even though that's not his son. He does have that protector, fatherly, paternal energy quality. And it just doesn't work with, with Nadine for uh, many reasons, which we can talk about. So you we're talking about like all the like strength qualities that Ed has, but I'm thinking of that scene in the season two premiere when he talks about when he shoots her eye out inadvertently, putting aside anything the secret history says, but he talks about how she never held it against him. She never even like screamed. It was, it, she was completely calm the whole way that even though they really aren't really a great couple all around, or at least it's a couple with a lot of serious problems, that they do seem to match in terms of strength with how they how they handle themselves and how they handle adversity. You see those scenes in early season two, which are probably my favorite scenes around that time, where you can tell that they do actually care for each other when it comes down to it. That Like at the end of season one, when uh, Ed's with the Bookhouse boys trying to get everything done in the season one finale, that leaves Nadine with that opportunity to feel isolated because the drape that completely fell through, she feels like there's nothing left to live for. But when they get down that where it feels like everything just feels rock bottom, that they do find a way to reconnect. And uh, mm-hmm. that's kind of what sets off her arc in season two. Yeah, there is a deep love there, right? There's obviously a deep care. I, I can, we can feel that Ed really does want her to be okay. And perhaps them getting together was driven by guilt of, oh, whoops, I accidentally almost hurt you on my, in this tractor moment. And also, oops, I almost, I did shoot your eye out and now you're, you can't see out of one eye. There is a deep love and care there, but because the setup is more of a, what I see as a, a kind of a caretaker protector and then a child like dynamic, it's, that's not really a husband and wife dynamic. You know, there's a lot of ways in which Ed sort of talks to her and treats her like as if she was like a child. And to be fair, you know, Nadine acts out. You know, there is that frozenness of of being stuck back at 16 when when her when trauma happened. So there is there are ways that she regresses. There's also ways that she acts out. She yells, you know, she she bends exercise equipment back, which is amazing, by the way. That's super human strength is pretty dope. <laughs> the one thing that's really interesting about that, I'm glad you brought that up because the thing I was surprised by when I did my, my first rewatch of Twin Peaks is that her super strength is actually introduced in two Lynch-directed episodes. The first one is in episode two, and I think people just kind of dismiss it because it's that part where Ed, of course, he uh, he accidentally destroys her drape runners, mm-hmm. and she's on the exercise bike, and she bends it back out of anger. But yeah. then we get to episode nine, where it shows that she actually gets out from the, I, I know handcuffs isn't really the right word, but her what she's confined to in the hospital bed. It's really, it's so it made me think of what Lynch had in mind in terms of where he wanted that to go, because... A lot of people seem to not like the superhuman strength, at least when we get to after Leland's wake. But it is interesting seeing like how this was all, at least relatively speaking, planned from early on and what that meant for the character and how this associates with anything we're talking about with her. Yeah, well, I, I see all of that superhuman strength as a way that she is adapted to surviving a significant amount of trauma. And yes, I see things through trauma lenses, but when she's pulling the exercise equipment back, that's because he's just come in and messed up her drape runners, which ends up being great, actually, because he spilled the stuff on it and that ends up working and helping her. But in the moment, she doesn't know that. In the moment, this thing that she has been working toward, this invention, right, like her father's invention, is her entire world. It is something that she can control in a chaotic environment. It is something that she's poured her heart and soul into. It's her hyper-focus. And with Ed coming in and disrupting and destroying that, 
it's like her world has collapsed. She doesn't know the difference, like her reality. Trauma does something to our reality where it becomes skewed. And so she actually doesn't know in that moment that the world isn't, isn't ending, basically. She's like, uh, everything is bad and wrong. I can't get this thing. It's not working. You've destroyed this thing that I love and that's going to keep me safe. The drape runners that control her ability to see in and out of the world, right? That literally open to the window to the world and then close it. That's her sense of being able to have agency and control over what how she regulates in the world. And him destroying that takes her over the edge. So there's no emotion regulation for her there. She's just enraged. And I think that that's actually quite an understandable rage. She has a lot of things to feel upset about. I validate her rage and her dysregulation. Now, sometimes she acts out in a way that may not be appropriate, right? <laughs> like it doesn't always benefit her to have that energy that goes outward. But bending back the bars of an exercise bike as a way to express how she's feeling inside and that level of rage, that's not hurting anything except the exercise bike. Who cares? good for her. <laughs> that's like, that's us getting to see on the outside what goes on for her on the inside. We're getting to see that level of energy that she holds all the time. She holds that rage inside of her. It's an understandable rage from childhood and now into adulthood. She's trying so hard to find her way in the world to make sense of this marriage. This marriage with Ed that, by the way, like we said, is not only has this parent-child dynamic, but also Ed's in love with Norma. So what is it like to be with someone, married with someone that you can't really feel like you can leave this relationship and you know that he's in love with someone else? I mean, that, does, that doesn't feel good. This is someone who already has mental health experience and probably low self-esteem. She's got Twin Peaks characters looking at her like, what's wrong with you? She's not feeling good about herself. And on top of that, she's got Ed who really doesn't have any interest in her. I mean, he takes care of her. He does what he's supposed to do as like a good husband. He gets painted as this character. But really, he wants to be with Norma. His heart's not there. His spirit's not there, right? He's doing on paper what he's supposed to do to take care of Nadine. But really, his heart and his spirit's with Norma. And so what is the ongoing impact of that? What does that feel like for her? It doesn't feel good. That just adds to her already kind of low sense of self-worth in a world. And she's a she's a freak in a great way. I love freaks. She's a Twin Peaks freak. But there's a lot of Twin Peaks freaks. So why does Nadine, when we talk about Nadine, she often gets characterized as like the comic relief of season one and two or like the crazy one or the eccentric one or uh, why is she, she's just having uh, a natural response to unnatural circumstances that have happened to her in her life. And she's just having, with all of the trauma that's happening in the world of Twin Peaks, I personally would want to have a quiet drape runner that could close that out, that could close that window out so I wouldn't have to see what was going on outside. She is having a completely natural response to unnatural circumstances going on all around her and going on in her life. So I just want to run off on a whole tangent, Colin. And I don't remember the original question that you just... <laughs> to be fair, that's a, that one that was a really good tangent, but it's also a segue because now that we've discussed that there is a inherent care for each other, unfortunately, I think it's kind of good to talk about the, I guess, the darker aspects of like what this type of relationship is because between it being a paternal type of relationship rather than a marital relationship and also the fact that Nadine has a certain like level of insecurity out of it because she knows that Ed loves Norma. But the thing that's worth mentioning is that, of course, it's not like her father where there's no substance abuse, but do you think it, from your standpoint that there's a, a almost an abuse becomes the abuser type of situation? Because she knows that, again, like we were mentioning, is that, that Ed loves Norma and that there's certain ways that the way she handles certain situations and uh, it seems like Dobley wants to withhold that. I, I wasn't sure if you had any insight on the more dysfunctional aspects uh, with the relationship. Do you mean specifically how Nadine acts with him? Like, can you say more, Colin, about that? Like, there are some examples of what you're thinking. When we first see her in season one, she'll yell at Ed right across the street. And it seems like this is the type of thing where, of course, James is there and like he knows Nadine. But this seems like the type of behavior that she would do like in public, like regardless of who was there. And it just seems like, you know, we we're saying before is that 
between it being a not really a marital relationship and also her insecurities that it, it does this lead to something that's unsustainable in terms of like it being a healthy relationship and could she use that to exploit him knowingly or unknowingly mm, okay i see what you're saying interesting questions i think that a lot a lot of her behavior towards ed is not skillful and ineffective but i don't see it or i'm not remembering instances of what i would call abusive behavior certainly yelling at him like we first see her about the drape sorry i can't remember i think that's what she's yelling at him about across the way is ineffective right that's not getting that's not a way for her to get her needs met but she doesn't have the skills remember she's 16 right she's like energetically and she's frozen still at 16 so a 16 year old yelling at their father dad you da 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 da, da. That's like developmentally appropriate. And I'm not saying that teenagers should be yelling at their parents, but we see that behavior more frequently with like a teenager who's like upset about something, right? That teens or kids don't have skills to be able to effectively say what they need. And Nadine has never been taught that. She was never taught that in her family of origin. She was ex experienced what we call complex trauma, which is trauma that happens over and over again in different ways and, and compounds. So it's not just one traumatic experience, like being in a plane crash, for example, and having PTSD from that post-traumatic stress disorder. That's one instance. Nadine has experienced complex trauma, trauma that happens over and over again, over time and compounds. When we experience complex trauma like that, and you don't get support you need around navigating the world, it manifests in behaviors, or it can manifest in behaviors like what we see in Nadine, where she gets really dysregulated and then acts out, right? Where she might yell, or she might do something that people who have learned skills of being interpersonally effective might not otherwise do. So I see it more as related to her frozenness and her trauma responses and being stuck in that loop, rather than I see it um, necessarily her acting abusively toward Ed. I, I see it in a different way, in that way. Since you mentioned that that part where she's still stuck at 16, because, you know, when we get to season two, that's where the memory regression occurs. Does that, that implies that she's been kind of stuck at 16, I guess, more or less, even like well before that? It's like you says that with your line of work, it's uh, I'm sure you see something of this nature where in the show, there's a very clear cut point of now she thinks she's in high school. But there's something underneath it that whole time that just wasn't addressed or there wasn't some that set it off. Yeah. And and a lot of times, you know, now that we understand that Nadine may be experiencing bipolar like her mom, right, which is that she has the genetic predisposition to that. The thing that originally sets off a bipolar experience for her at 16 is her mother's mental health break. And then we get the sense that Nadine mostly throughout her life kind of has things managed enough, right? I mean, she's still Nadine, okay? She's She's got to be Nadine. She's still Nadine, but she's got herself managed a little bit. And then we get her eye being shot out in the hunting accident. And that's sort of another thing that sets her off. Then we get the, the drape runner pattern that doesn't go through. And this drape runner pattern was the promise of a future for her. This was a way to connect with her father, right? He got his patent going. That made the family okay. So quote unquote, she's looking to do the same thing and it doesn't work. It's something that she's doing for herself outside of Ed. It's her way of individuating from Ed. And it doesn't work. The patent doesn't go through. And so her world falls apart, right? It's like that moment where he comes in and messes up the drape runner. It's that same feeling of like, everything is now not okay. So that doesn't work. And so suicide, death by suicide is the only way out at that point. It's her only way to take agency back. It's her only way to say, here's something that I can do for myself. I'm too, the, my depression is activated again. So I'm, this is the only way out is this. And which lands her in a coma, which then activates this 16 year old delusion, which I love. Colin, I love it. I know that in the community, some folks are like, what is happening with this, her going back to high school situation? But it is exactly the way what she needs to do to loop herself out of that trauma cycle is to actually go back. And as a psychotherapist, I believe that even if we're not physically going back to high school, that we go back in conversation, that we go back somatically 
to wherever we need to go to get unstuck. And this is what Nadine does, but she actually does it. And so Dr. Jacoby, despite all of his, he's got a lot of problems, but I love that he facilitates, he helps facilitate this for her and Ed's on board with it too, right? And they're like, okay, you're going to go back to high school. You're going to actually move through and live through. They do a Lars and the real girl whole situation and the town's on board and everybody's on board and she's actually going back and getting to be that be that Nadine she didn't get to be and heal through being that person that she didn't get to be because trauma got in the way, because she was hospitalized, because she didn't get to do it before. And so she gets to do it this time and she gets to do it with superhuman strength and with Mike Nelson. And I think he's of age by the time they start having sex. I certainly hope so. But, but she gets to have a romance, right? She doesn't get to just live in a fantasy of it she gets to be it. She gets to do it. And in doing so, she moves through and heals part of not only her own trauma loop and trauma cycle, but also she is healing and moving through something intergenerationally that her mom never got to. So her mom is staying stuck, right? In some ways, we get that sense from what we see in the secret history that her mom never got to do that, that her mom ended up in the hospital and was medicated and didn't live a great life and and had a hard time and was stuck in a lot of ways. Nadine is not, is becoming unstuck by getting to go through this and is doing it not just for herself, but also healing what her mom didn't get to do. So this is intergenerational healing that Nadine is doing. At least that's how I see it. That's a pretty remarkable and incredibly perceptive outlook. Again, I know that the Mike and Nadine romance doesn't land for for a lot of fans. Because my thing is that the way, I mean, conceptually, the way you describe it reaffirms like what makes that dynamic so great. But for you, when you look at the execution of it, because it's not just the Mike and Nadine romance, but just the tone of season two when that's introduced, a lot of people just aren't on board for it. Were you okay with like the more fun, lighthearted tone that with the Mike and Nadine romance? Or do you kind of wish that they took it in a more serious lens? Mm -hmm. Great question, Colin. When I first saw the show, I wasn't a psychotherapist and I didn't have this trauma lens that I was looking through. So I was like, kind of overall, what's happening in season two? What's going on? This is getting kind of ridiculous uh, as if it wasn't before. So I I had that thought, but I always liked their storyline. I always loved Nadine. Nadine was always my, one of my favorites, her and Teresa Banks. I love Teresa Banks and I love her. And so I always loved it. But now seeing it through this lens around trauma and going back psychologically and allowing for that to happen brings a new dimension to it for me and makes it really, really important. Again, I obviously don't support any adult having a relationship with a minor. That's not what I'm saying, but I am. But developmentally for Nadine, it's exactly the medicine in order to help her move through what she needs to move through and realize parts of herself, those younger parts that didn't get to be, that didn't get to be before so that's how i look at it how, how about you i was writing notes about mike nelson uh yesterday at the time of this recording the one thing and i'll talk about in a more way like conceptually before i get to the execution is that they do go through a like a good way of like how mike would embrace this romance where he's very begrudging about it he's very <laughs> off put by it uh because i mean you know she asks him out while she beats him in wrestling so i think that's a bit of a blow to his ego But then we get to the part where it's like when he starts getting into it, like they go to the Great Northern and they're dressed up as like different aliases, uh, for lack of a better term, and they get caught in the act. But I do, I did write down that the part where when Mike, when he's starting to be full, fully on board for it, he taught, he, he explains to Bobby while everyone's preparing for the Miss Twin Peaks. It's like, oh, do you know what a woman with her maturity and her superhuman powers can do? We never hear what it is, but the way Dana Ashbrook just goes, sorry, I'm gonna have to step away from the mic. Whoa! Uh, it, it it's probably like one of the funniest parts of that part of the season, and uh, it, it, that part only gets any funny because we never know what it is. But I think everyone's minds will go to like the most raunchy, absurd aspects of what could have possibly happened that night in the Great Northern. And the thing is that even putting that aside, Mike, and again, maybe it's him just saying it, but when everything goes awry with Wyndham Earl at the Twin Peaks pageant. He does say to her in the season two finale about how he feels very strongly for her and how how he feels. And uh, unfortunately, that's like when Nadine, she comes back to her senses, for lack of a better term. It's like the worst thing for him 
and of course Ed and Norma as well because everyone was starting to get comfortable with like where she was at in terms of being stuck in the high school mindset. But then when she quote unquote snaps back into it, it throws a wrench into it for a lot of people. Yeah, she she has moved through that part of her trauma loop in the cycle and come back to adulthood essentially, right? And waking is waking up to see. Um, she, she gets hit in the head. She gets hit in the head by a sandbag or something at the Twin Peaks contest. I think that's what wakes her up. I think that's what it is. Yeah. And she's coming back to look around to see. Oh wait a second. Uh, I moved to that part of my developmental cycle that I need to move through, and now I'm an adult again, and now I'm married to Ed, and I think she's kind of going, why, why, why am I married to? What's going on? And then it sends us all back until the return, right? And in the return, then we see, I think, the most actualized Nadine. And what I mean by that is someone who is really integrated a lot of her trauma experience. And yes, she's like drinking the Dr. Amp Kool-Aid and she's got her, you know, she's got her shovel in the window. But look at her. She's got her patent. So she she was she became the thing that she was looking to become, right? This inventor. And it's been validated by getting this patent. She's got her own business going, run silent, run drapes. She's like serving up entrepreneurial realness. She's like loving it. She's just sitting back. She's got her like smoothie that she's drinking. She's watching Dr. Jacoby and whatever kind of show he's doing. <laughs> you know, she's got she's got her whole thing. She's got her whole setup. Nowhere do I see Nadine in the return as someone who needs Ed. Basically, she says, you can you go now and enjoy like you can go now. And it's not Ed saying that to her. It's her saying it to Ed. Like she's saying, I don't need you. We don't need each other. This codependent relationship that we've been in for years and years and years is not working for either one of us. And I'm individuated from you. I am integrated and I have all the things I need. You want to be with Norma? Go enjoy that. I'm going to go live my best life with my golden shovel and shovel my shoveling myself out of the shit means we aren't in, needing to be in each other's lives in the way that we have been before. And that's miraculous. And that's Nadine doing that. That's not Ed saying, okay, sweetie, go ahead now. I'm going to go do that. It's not, there's none of that. She has taken back the power and the agency here, which is fantastic. One of the things that she says to Ed, and this is partially why I brought up the thing, the possibility of the abuse become the abuser dynamic is that when she brings, she gives him the gold shovel, she refers to it and he's, he's trying to be nice about it, but she says, oh, I was a cold hearted bitch to you. And there's a way that Wendy <laughs> Roby delivers that line. Cause keep in mind, this is, you know, 25 years after the events of the original series and we don't really know what the relationship was like. I kind of got the impression that they were like separated or living together, but like we're like alone together type of thing. Yeah. But there, there's just something about like the way that she says it. Again, we don't know what happened, but also it's not until season three where she finally gives him the gold shovel. The thing is that it's probably also worth mentioning is that he seems kind of put off by it because he knows it's Dr. Amp. And also in the final dossier, she <laughs> does talk about how she got it for herself and everyone on her Christmas list. And... <laughs> I don't know, it's sort of like, imagine if like, I don't know, if like I had family and I gave everyone Alex Jones's Wake Up America coffee, like, uh, <laughs> it, it would be like, a, I don't know, uh, Colin, you should probably step away from the alternative news. That, I feel like that would be the discourse before anything else. Yeah. And so there she is. I mean, she's still Nadine, right? I mean, she still has mental health experience. She's still drinking the Kool-Aid of whatever this is and, you know, taking in his messaging and wanting to spread it out. And I mean, she's still Nadine, but she's a different Nadine. The Nadine in the return is a much more trauma integrated Nadine who knows what she wants and is not afraid to ask for it and to not just ask for it, but to say it, to say and demand it and that's and to even own like she like you said to her her saying that to ed owning her part like she wasn't the greatest to him sometimes you know she did get dysregulated she was not able to tolerate her distress when she would get upset about certain things that's absolutely right but we we have the sense that you know she's moved through and healed a lot of what was blocking her what was keeping her frozen and does she still have work to do sure we all do you know is she still nadine yeah but there's a substantial difference in in what we see with her in the return and this is a nadine in the return that is 
not living in a delusional fantasy world. She's really grounded. We really see her feet on the ground and her connected to the earth and her having a sense of the empowered self that she that she is. I guess there's a couple ways to start off with this because it does gear, it kind of dips into her uh, attachment to Dr. Amp because not only, because in the final dossier, it shows that uh, not only, I mean, of course we see in season three where she has the shovel just prominently displayed and run silent, run drapes. But also, at least according to Tammy Preston's uh, report, is that she drinks his hemp shakes. He does. She does uh, his nature walks programs and supports all of his political causes. And uh, in the Dr. Jacoby report, they show how he he, he there's a lot that he donates to. And uh, it seems like it, it's probably worth mentioning is that this is one commonality where it can lead to a good and or bad thing is that they both seem to have improved well beyond from where they were in the original series. Like Jacoby was like a was a bit of a more than a creepy guy i don't know there's as quirky as russ tamlin played it there was a lot that was more than unethical about the way he handled himself oh yeah but the, but the thing is that now that they're both beyond that point in their lives and the thing is that she adheres to everything that dr amp does it seems like they kind of have what could be a potential relationship lined up and it to be fair i i kind of look at it as like despite the fact that there's a lot that would make that a potentially unsustainable or like a more dominant dynamic on Dr. Ram's part. It does seem like they do seem to be on the same page and they do have a better thing going than Ed and Nadine did. And then Dr. Ramp seems like he has something more in his life than just ranting and raving every night about the injustices of the world. Yeah, I, I say this with absolute love to both of them, but they're both a little bananas. You know what I mean? They both have a little, they both have quirkiness. They both have ability to expand into different states and think about the world and in really specific ways. And I think there's a lot of alignment there with the two of them. Having said that, because they were once patient doctor, it's a questionable choice if they decide to pursue something romantically. Technically, this is true for psychotherapists, but with psychiatrists, I imagine it's also true. After two years after treatment ends, you can technically engage in some sort of relationship with a patient or with a client. I would never do something like that just because it's, it's not appropriate in my mind and it's unethical, but technically you probably could. It's not like Dr. Jacoby's always held up to the highest ethical standards anyway in his practice. <laughs> um, but I have to say one of the in one of the important messages for me in doing research about this and looking back at the secret history is that when Dr. Jacoby initially was with Nadine as a patient, his treatment plan for her, which is basically the course of how he would support her in treating her and getting well, included things like going on nature walks, meditation, and things that are really outside of the realm of Western medicine. You know, usually like with Nadine's mom, you would go to a mental hospital or go to get go to get help and treatment. And it would just be all about medication, right? Big pharma medication, like antipsychotics, like bam, and not really thinking about the holistic health and wellness of the patient or the client. Dr. Jacoby is thinking about that with Nadine. I think he thinks about that. And with all of his problems, I will give him credit for really thinking outside of the box, even you know, we can think about Ben Horn in the Civil War moment. We can think about the Lars and the Real Girl situation with Nadine and letting everyone, making sure everybody's on the same page with that. That's really thinking outside of the box in terms of what would support her in her wellness and recovery process. And I think he's really thinking about that. So the fact that they have this history together in this weird and wonderful world of Twin Peaks might actually be beneficial and interesting and important for their relationship now as we see them in the return and i would be really interested to see where that would go and what would happen i also would really love to see what nadine is doing outside of the world of dr amp like what's going on for her what is what does she like to do she's taking nature walks that's cool i would like to imagine that she maybe is like connected with a group of online female inventors and is like talking with them and talking about like, like vibing about whatever they want to invent and like their inventions and getting into her like scientific mind. You know, I, I want to think about the world for Nadine that's outside of men. 
right? Like outside of what men tell her to do or don't tell her to do or, or influence her, like, like she has spent so many years with and without Ed and so many years sort of now. Yeah. So, so just thinking about like, who is she when she's not in that world being defined by men and by patriarchy? Like, who is she? What does she want? What is she, where does she want to go? What does she want to do? We mentioned the whole aspect of inventing. And uh, I feel like I have to bring up some more fantastical aspects of Twin Peaks. You mentioned how her father had the flame retardant and how that associates with the fire. And this is more so about how I think that fire and electricity could potentially influence her. I think of the season two finale where you see it's like Mike and Nadine on one end. And then in between there's a fireplace on the other end there's Ed and Norma. And there's a different dynamic, but once Nadine has that realization, it's like, because mm. I, I think of like how fire, and we see this in definitely the season two finale in a couple spots and fire walk with me primarily, but how fire is this nefarious force that kind of makes things worse. Mm-hmm. And then conversely, and this has come back to Dr. Ramp in season three, and also Hawk, because he talks about how electricity is the new fire and it's the intent as well. Yes. And the thing is that with Dr. Ramp is that even though that it's politics that doesn't align with a lot of people to say the least, it does seem to have a good intent because I think of how Laura, like with the golden orb, I think that when you see the where, where we're at in season three early on, where one of the first things we see is Dr. Amp with the gold shovels. And this is a slow thing that seems disconnected, but it's uh, through this whole arc with Jacoby and Nadine, despite the fact that they have one scene together, where this is kind of what sets off Nadine to free Ed so he can have his relationship with Norma and then Nadine can do her own thing. It's like you were saying is that, you know, she like finds her own footing in the world of just being independent or if her and Jacoby end up having a relationship that there's something about that intent of electricity, which while can be deemed nefarious, that there was a good intent that has kind of led to a happy ending for at least these four. Mm, nice, Colin. I love how you do that. How do you just like make how you synthesize things really well? That was awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I guess the one last thing, and this is something that more so back for season two, because we're, you know, one of the things you talk about trauma loops where it kind of cycles back and uh, mm-hmm. about how you can kind of like continue on and thrive. While we did talk about Mike, there is also that aspect of like when she starts doing wrestling, where it seems like a lot of people don't really believe that she can do it because she doesn't have like the build that they do. But at the same right. time, we see the where she gets like all these trophies. And the only one that she didn't was that she took a guy down in a way where it went against the regulations. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't sure if you had any insight in terms of like what this meant for her character, because she's like getting everything that she ever wanted in terms of just of success. Yeah, great question. I love that part. They're all looking around her like, oh, you can't, you're just a girl. What are you going to do? Like the sexism is alive and well, and also the ageism, right? They're like, here's a woman in her thirties trying to be a high school wrestler. That's what boys do who are teenagers. What are you doing? And she takes them down and the wrestling coach is on board and everyone's on board and she nails it. She does fantastic. And I think, you know, not only her being a cheerleader, but also there's a way that she can channel all that superhuman strength into something that's productive. That's like taking something that's a a little bit wild, right? A little bit untethered and making it concrete, making it channeled into something that's useful something that she can feel proud of, something that she can do something with. So it's a way to move that energy. It's like teens may have uh, a lot of understandable anger because of what's going on around them in their homes. And they end up doing like martial arts or something, right? Or playing basketball or playing a sport where they can move that energy through and focalize it somewhere, you know, make it, make it into one spot. And so I see that as part of what Nadine gets to do with her superhuman strength. And also be victorious and have successes. The drape runner patent at that time is, is wasn't working. And so she needed something to feel good about. She needed those trophies. You know, kids need trophies. <laughs> kids need medals or whatever. And, and it's not just about like winning in a traditional sense. There can be multiple winners. It's, it's not about that. It's about having a external validation of something that she's really good at. And my sense in that family of origin that she came from, there probably wasn't a lot of people that they're probably her, her mother and father likely were not saying to her, 
wow, Nadine, like you did an amazing job. We're so proud of you at whatever it was that she was doing at that time. You know, probably nobody at home was able to give her that external validation. And so she had years and years of that built up energy that then gets to come out. And yeah, she's like killing it at wrestling. Good for her. I think I said everything about Nadine. Um, was there anything else you wanted to discuss about her? I mean, I, I, I just, I love her. And, you know, I, I, I hope that whoever might be listening may, if you have feelings about the second season, that thinking about it in terms of trauma loops and trauma healing and trauma recovery might provide different insights into how we think about what happens with her, with her story arc with Mike and how important it is actually that she do that and how, even if it's annoying or it's, you know, irritating or however we, we feel some type of way about it, that developmentally, it's actually incredibly important for her healing journey. And that's my take on it. And I'll just say that even though we see her in a different light in season three, that trauma never leaves us when we experience trauma or complex trauma like Nadine, it's always in us, but how it gets integrated really matters. And then if it flares up again, if we have tools, we, we'll just manage it. So it never goes away. It just gets managed and integrated. And I think that's really important to think about as we think forward with Nadine is it's likely that she might get activated by something. Her nervous system might get activated by something. And so how is she going to manage herself? So, you know, she's not yelling or behaving in a way that she doesn't want to be doing. And that's, that's the ongoing work of, of managing trauma in life and in the world. And I think it's a bigger message about Twin Peaks too, that trauma never, never goes away. You can't erase it. You can't go back and take away what happened to Laura. It's just there. Right. And so what do we do with it? How do we integrate that? How do we understand that it's a part of our experience and then move forward? So I think that's, that's the biggest messages for me about Nadine is she represents all of that and she's just wonderful. I love her. I agree. But uh, I just want to say thank you for coming on because uh, this was like an insight I never would have expected to get from Nadine. Thanks so much, Colin. I love talking about her. I'm so glad that you that we got to connect and that you asked me to come do that. Oh, absolutely. But uh, again, um, you know, hope you have a great day and uh, look forward to being able to put this up. Thanks so much, Colin. Together, forever.